This episode is brought to you by us at Marketing Examine. We're the ones hosting the podcast. And the reason is this. So for the longest time, case studies have been flawed. You read a Harvard Business Review case study. It's 50 pages. It's dense. And you walk away with absolutely nothing. So we're on a mission to fix that. Every week, we send two case studies and we've converted them into playbooks and they're fun, they're engaging, they're visual. They're essentially for visual learners to help you make smarter marketing decisions and help your growth efforts. So if you wanna make smarter marketing decisions, you wanna grow your startup, then here's what you should do. There's a link in the description, click it, subscribe, and these playbooks will hit your inbox every Tuesday and Thursday. And thanks again to Marketing Examine. Are you We're back. Another one. Another one. The wise words of DJ Cali. Um, so we got a lot of good stuff today, but first, uh, before we dive into it, so we're going to be in Venice first week of February. We're going to be hosting a meetup. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of shit. We're going to be recording podcasts, recording a YouTube show, want to do some founder host, dinners, marketing dinners. Yeah, host dinners. a dinner. Yeah. Uh, any brand operators in the area, definitely hit us up. Uh, we're going to have a nice event schedule. Um, yeah. Definitely curated pretty well been to a lot of those things so you know key objective will be actually making people enjoy their time there rather than feeling like you got stuck in a corner talking to the wrong dude for yeah. an hour so, or just talking to your friend like yeah, what, yeah, what yeah happens most of the yeah, time not allowed and, and we'll we'll add a, a type form or something to this episode so they could sign up for that uh, we just have to figure out the details but all right here's what's on the docket for me uh, i'm gonna talk about truff so the hot sauce they've blown up they've yep. become an eight-figure brand I don't know their actual revenue numbers, but I do know that they've, they're, I mean, they're just blowing up. Yeah. They just got a, I think a minority investment from, uh, what is it? Sky, Sky Partners. Yeah, yeah. From Sky Partners. And then the other thing that I'm going to talk about that you and I are both going to brainstorm on is how to spy on your competitors or how to just like kind of reverse engineer somebody's funnel and and learn from what they're doing. And then what do you got? Yeah. So I got a segment about this company, Andrel. And so they're a weapons manufacturer, but they actually went viral at the end of November using very similar tactics that a lot of D2C brands and other you know consumer products companies do. And I just thought it was fascinating because that's a taboo subject, marketing, you know, defense weapons, aerospace, all that stuff. And they were able to leverage a lot of the same principles that you would include in any sort of product marketing, but for a taboo subject. And I think it you know, there's no direct response ability on a, on a drone video, right? Like you yeah. can't, can't source that. But um, I think it went probably really well with them and did a lot to, you know, build momentum for them. And so it's like, how can you use video to also be not just a, you know, revenue driver, but a momentum builder? You want to jump in right there? Yeah. I mean, so this company is, it's founded by Palmer Lucky. So have you heard of Palmer Lucky? So previously he, you know, this guy grew up in Long Beach, California, and he was always tinkering with stuff, like got himself in trouble like a few times by pushing the limits of what he would build. Um, he was always trying to tinker with like VR headsets, eventually became the founder of Oculus, uh, which was acquired by Meta for around a billion dollars, maybe two billion. Um, and Palmer actually got ousted at Facebook for being maybe a little bit controversial in 2016. He supported a an organization that was funding Donald Trump that didn't really play well at Facebook. And so he got ousted. And how does he respond? You might think, oh, he's going to go build another VR company. Nah, he was like, I'm going to go build weapons for the government. (laughs) So he decided to build a defense contractor. And his thesis was, you know, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin 
had dominated this place, this space for the longest time. You know, Eisenhower warns about the military industrial complex. It's not a space that's easy to penetrate. You cannot get in there. But, you know, what he identified was that there was a strategic advantage for the United States to have, you know, a company try and modernize a lot of this stuff. And so how does he get in? Well, he actually kind of did a free trial almost with the DOD, the Department of Defense. So he, say, I don't know what the D, you got to drop yeah, what the yeah, DOD yeah. is. So he, he does this, uh, a free trial with them where they, they had an open bid for uh, border enforcement and it was for a sentry tower uh, that would be autonomously ran. So it would detect when migrants were crossing the border illegally. And it was by far the most effective piece of technology they'd ever deployed at the border. Um, he ends up winning that contract. He's kind of off to the races. There's the social proof he needs to raise, nice. you know, a lot of money and eventually start this company. And so Anderl is really well known for innovating on kind of existing products that the U.S. military uses. Um, and what this video was about was a drone that was an aerial defense tool. So it takes out, you know, opposing airplanes, missiles, whatever. And what I just thought was so interesting about this is, you know, Raytheon, Lockheed, they don't have compelling marketing because they frankly don't give a shit. Like they, they've, they're so entrenched in being a supplier to the U.S. government for the products that they do, which are fighter jets, missiles, everything that we use in aerial combat. And, you know, Andrew has to take their lunch, right? They have to take those contracts away from these major players. So how are they going to do that? Well, you have to win over public sentiment. You have to win over, you know, the hearts and minds of people that are stakeholders in this conversation. And they're doing it through marketing which is really interesting. So this video drops on November 30th and it's about a drone uh, called the Roadrunner. I want to read you this intro paragraph on the YouTube description because it might just fire you up a little bit. Let's do it. Malicious actors are increasingly using state-owned and commercially available drone technology to threaten the personnel, <laughs> infrastructure, and assets of the United States and our allies around the world. Anduril Industries has built a family of systems to counter such threats, and we're thrilled to welcome the newest addition to that family, Roadrunner. Like, they're copywriting this YouTube description, right? Yeah. Like, that is not something... <laughs> they're, they're really setting a stage. They're telling a story. They're trying to, you know, play into your emotions about like, okay, like, I feel a little bit threatened. Like, what do you got for me? And the video is really cool because it almost feels like it's a scene out of Iron Man. Or I was like, about to say, this, the, the cinematics in this video is stellar. Right. If you're listening on audio, it might be a good time to like switch over to the YouTube because I want to watch through this video and talk about some of the key points that they use that any consumer product company can also incorporate into their Let's videos. So we're looking at the hook. You know, this barren wasteland. <laughs> like, boom. Headline. Roadrunner product title. Now, notice, crazy jet, like right, crazy looking drone jet. Right, thing. and they're they're doing feature mapping, right? So they're they're positioning, like what the core use cases of it. Yeah, and telling you what is so special about the product. Roadrunner's ready to launch within seconds. Okay, show me. <laughs> you know, and then this thing takes off, pops out of like a robotic yeti right like how many <laughs> how many cameras do they have on this thing dude like they hook up a gopro to the actual you mean rocket. to tell me i got a pov of me about to pop this fighter jet like it's incredible no this is wild and all it's doing is just using specific marketing language talking about the product now like you know there's another thing right like my question would be how, do, how does it get used like what are some of the differences of it between other drones 
And again, you're just gonna see like this footage is so compelling. It's so I. This is literally like Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. No, I, I like my. <laughs> this is uh, what they call in Top Gun a dogfight. It's just yeah. like drone versus jet right here. <laughs> he just rocks I mean, versus, that uh, jet right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they they just blew up a jet. Um, so and then it shows, you know, it returns to base, right? By the way, this music, a little spooky, feels it like. <laughs> but it's very on brand for Palmer Lucky. Yeah, exactly. Like for context, like, he is he is the one that made an Oculus that would kill you if you died in in a game. Yeah, no, he's got big like uh, you know syndrome from the Incredibles, like the yeah, dude with yeah. the spiky red hair. Like yeah. he's got a lot of that energy where he's like this super genius, but like I don't know if he's gonna use it for good or evil. Anyways, it, it, it blew me away because, you know, they do, they feature map. They use compelling product demonstrations. They show the yeah. use case and they're using shot types and angles that, you know, are very visually appealing. A um, couple of things that were really interesting. So the YouTube video uh, got 2 million views, Yeah. right? The uh, tweet from Andrew got around 430,000 views. His tweet actually got 2.8 million views, Palmer's. Wow. Yeah, And I thought it was fascinating there as well because he is a celebrity founder, right? He goes on the podcast circuit. He's the one that's actually negotiating with the DOD. And it's more evidence that a lot of this content distribution from the founder's account really is sort of the future of marketing because it, it's awesome to come from Andrew, but it's just different when it's coming from the guy who's kind of calling the shots. I think it's the same thing that we see with Elon and Tesla it's the same thing that we talked about with Airbnb and Brian Chesky, where the the founders are the PR team. And the brand is almost like now social proof that the brand exists kind of thing. Where but yeah. the but the the actual PR team, the actual marketing team is the founder. And like right. you should be building content teams and and uh yeah, you should be building content teams around the founder versus the brand and the and the founder will then feed the brand because that's a perfect example of it. And I think uh, Brian Chesky did this just recently with he did he launched like the Airbnb recap yeah for 2023. And again, it got millions and millions well, and of all, views. All of his announcements have been coming from his account. All of them. Yeah. All and of then them. you know Airbnb will distribute them that way. And what a way to kind of win over your core stakeholders, which are the American people. And you know you look at Raytheon or Lockheed. They're doing real kind of very, very corporate, bland. This is what the future is going to look like. You know, here's 10 trends to keep an eye on. They're not marketing their products like this at all from a, for, for a consumer. And, you know, you ask yourself, like, why would they do that for the consumer? Well, you know, it's going to certainly help them win more contracts in the future. But I think also just for Palmer, it's it's a way to continue to boost his brand. And I think he understands that him as the celebrity founder is going to continue to make the company better positioned to be the dominant you know, supplier to the Department of Defense. This gets me into the conversation and thinking about, you know, how do you market other brands that, that's kind of taboo? And the first brand that I thought about, because we both know him, is Isaac from Mini Katana. Yeah. Right. And mini katanas, like these Japanese swords, and you probably can't run ads against that. You can't. Yeah. I, I yeah, would you guess can. you can't. Very strictly banned. Yeah. And so his whole thing was okay, we have to succeed with organic video. Right. And he's done a phenomenal job of it. If you look at his YouTube channel, they have 7 million subs yeah. at this point. I wrote about them. I don't know if it was last, sometime last year, late 2022, but or 2022. But um, at the time, he like kind of, 
built in public the entire brand and, and gave away all his secrets to YouTube. And what I feel like when you're talking about that brand, they're doing a lot of the same playbook as like Mini Katana. Yep. They know how to go viral. They know they should be creating YouTube shorts. They know they should be creating educational content around the around the product because you can't do anything but put out organic content that reaches a lot of people. Like you can't go into Facebook and feed the machine and reach millions of people. You have to do that organically and that's yep. very hard. So you have to figure out what is like the recipe that consistently goes viral. Um, Isaac from Mini Katana kind of broke it down and he did a phenomenal job at it. It's like, you really want to use your YouTube shorts to pop off. Right. And so he has this series called, Can I Slice It? And in that series, they slice everything, right? Like they throw up watermelons. They have another one where they brought in some, I don't know his name, but he's like some influencer that always does shit with a sword and they shot like an airsoft gun at him. Yeah. And as the bullet's coming in and it's in slow-mo, you literally see him slice and he gets the airsoft he, gun. Is it a black dude? Like yeah, doing yeah, a backflip before? Yeah, the guy doing yeah. backflip. It's like one shit. of the craziest videos ever. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely wild. But his recipe was, we're going to do one really good long form video a week and then five to seven short form videos a week. And then they eventually scaled that through three times a day. And their whole goal was to use short form to get people into their funnel. And then as more questions would come in on the YouTube shorts that were kind of educational based, that's how then they would uh, create all their long form content. So mm -hmm. one of their Can I Slice It series, their top video is 120 million views, which is absolutely crazy, right? Game 120 busters. million yeah. views is absolutely crazy. And then when you look at their their other content, that's like five things to never do with your with your katana that has 20 or 30 million views. Right. Like yeah. and that is a completely educational based uh, video. But that video and I found like all the all the details about it, that video is based off people's comments. So like they'll look into the comments and see, OK, this has gotten asked 100 times. We should make a video about it. Yeah. And then that's how they'll determine their their long form uh, videos. But again, when we just think of a, a taboo product that you can't advertise anywhere else, you have to figure out like what that viral button is and how you could just press it all the time. They're exactly. probably hitting 500 million views a month oh, at this point, yeah, maybe a billion uh, views a month because I think they have other channels and shit that they, they kind of do this across. And I'm referring to like YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. Mm -hmm. They've blown up. They've figured out how to do this on every single platform. It's not just YouTube. So when you're talking about Anderol, like, they they're figuring out how to press this viral button where you know it, it kind of gives me a lot of tesla vibes where tesla yes and also spacex yeah right yeah. because spacex is strategically incentivized as well to you know win over kind of the the general public as like you know this is what we want nasa to be throwing these contracts to they're competing with blue origin they're competing with all these people to win you know space contracts and Elon intimately understands that. And that's why he always broadcasts, you know, Falcon launch. Yeah. You know, he he puts this stuff in public. Like that is Tesla's or, you know, SpaceX's version of marketing. It's just broadcasting what their cool, very novel products are doing and showing like, you know, he has this uh, quote where he says, the future should look like the future. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what Anderil feels like too. That's a, that's a sick quote. Like it, it seems like Anderil is building the products that we expect the U.S. military to use in 2024, which are just these like crazy futuristic, like this thing, you know, it's taking out a jet and then landing again. And it's all coming from a futuristic Yeti, like you were talking about, like it's yeah. going crazy. And so interesting how he's positioned this company, like that video, you know, there's that scene in the dark night where they introduce Bane and uh, they're like on the plane. Yeah. Right. And I, I felt like I was watching something similar with that sort That's of fair. anticipation build up. 
not something that any of his competitors would ever do ever you know they don't not only do they have like the top down strategic thought to even do that like they wouldn't be able to execute with their existing personnel because they're just so archaic and he recognized that yeah. and that's something that every brand that's trying to disrupt incumbent legacy players should think about like there's a tie between what midday squares is doing to hershey's mm -hmm. and what anderl is doing to lockheed martin right yeah. there's a direct correlation which is positioning yourself as you know what the future should look like i don't know if you've seen uh recently with like the cybertruck so the cybertruck is quote unquote bulletproof you know and that's not something you can advertise that's not something you could run a facebook ad behind showing somebody just shooting but everyone knows about it yeah but everyone knows about it but like you can't just shoot uh, a cyber truck and run that as an ad or like have it, yeah. a bomb go off underneath it and so when you think of okay how are we going to get people to to know this and pay attention to it and see it in action well they created a, a youtube video where they unloaded a tommy gun on the cyber truck they yeah. also unloaded uh, I think a Glock, they unloaded a shotgun. They unloaded like a, just a, a, an array of different guns on it. Yeah. And it has, don't quote me, but I think around 20 million views. Well, and the clip of Rogan firing a bow into the yeah. window with Elon on the podcast. So, you know, I think what you're talking about right there and tying it into something we discussed last week, which is legacy publications losing their, losing their appeal because they're decreasing in traffic. We're going from a uh, publication-owned audience world to a content aggregator world, right? Barstool Sports over time, Bleacher Report did this in the sports world where all they're doing is just picking up what they find the most viral clip to be and then running it on their socials. And what I think Palmer Lucky and Elon Musk and a lot of, you know, other fantastic business, I, I mean, Nick from Midday Squares, it goes all the way that like that deep is what they understand is virality attracts aggregators regardless. So you're pretty much skipping the step of having to pay HuffPost or The Atlantic or someone to pick up your stuff because that's how PR used to work. You used to work with a PR agency and then pay the publication to pick up your story. Now you have all these aggregators that they're just searching. They're just hunting to ride something viral. So the initial thought is, you know, not how, how can we create a story for the publication, but how can we create our own story? that goes viral with the general population and then the aggregators will pick it up. That's exactly what Elon did with that firing a bow. Like Joe Rogan and Elon Musk shoot bow at Cybertruck. In the middle of a podcast episode. Everyone's picking that up. 100%. And, you know, versus him putting out a story in yeah. like wire cutter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the most bulletproof car is the Cybertruck. <laughs> like it's just not the same. And I, I think, you know, founders have to be super conscious of that. And that's this whole macro trend that we've talked about, which is you can own your content distribution and tell your story, let the rest take care of itself. Yeah. Because if, if you do the Elon playbook and this Palmer Lucky playbook and you are getting picked up by the aggregators, you're also going to get picked up by Wirecutter. Yeah. Because they're not going to miss out on that, uh, that potential of traffic of like, this is a hot story and we're just going to ignore it. No, they're, mm -hmm. they're going to write about it as well. And that is, but that is again, like the new model of media. Yeah. It's, it's something that you see a lot in like working with brands on TikTok shop. Um, so there is a halo effect that comes when the brand is producing its own efficient content. Yeah. I've heard countless brands say, I can't get any influencer to hit me back. I contacted 1100 and only 30 responded. Yeah. And then I look at their TikTok and I'm like, okay, well, yeah, this influencer looks at your account and thinks this brand it's doesn't whack. do any revenue. Yeah. Like it's not going to move because you haven't shown them that 
social proof that videos are capable of moving on the platform versus brands that are popping, they can't clear out their inbox fast enough. Yeah. Like every every affiliate person on that platform is reaching out to them. 100%. And it's similar to what you just said is, you know, with Andrel, this video got picked up by every single YouTuber. It got picked by like every every military YouTube account was talking about the Roadrunner for a week. Yeah. Every single publication was talking about the Roadrunner and they probably didn't have to pay any of those people. Whereas back in the day, you'd have to have a sophisticated PR rollout team making sure that all of those people were going to be aware of the announcement in advance. And now they just dropped it on their own and like broke the internet. 100%. We're going to switch it up big time from yeah. drones and fucking explosives to... I mean, hot, hot, hot sauce, sauce can be explosive in its yeah. own way. <laughs> yeah. From hot C4 <laughs> to hot sauce, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you heard of Truff? I'm sure you have. Everybody's, I have, bro. I'm not going yeah, you know, to lie to you. I got, gas a, I got a truff the, in my damn fridge, bro. Yeah, do you? I've heard of truff. Yeah. Okay, so truff hot sauce. Uh-huh. Eight-figure brand. They've blown up in the last few years. It Probably pushing like, nine, too. Yeah, they, I, would I, I would assume that they're closer to nine figures than like yes. eight figures and 10 million right. uh, in revenue. But they've blown up in the last mm-hmm. two years, I would say, like two, three years. Um, and so I, I kind of dove down there their playbook how did they do it how did they get there so the the part that really stood out to me was they started as a food instagram page i don't know if you know that but they started essentially as like the aggregator they were the curator and their hand and they got lucky they got it the handle at sauce yeah um before the word like he sauced up is was was dope like yeah. they were they were very early to it and so <laughs> their whole thing was like look we're aggregating all this food content we're essentially a foodie page but we eventually want to launch our own products. And so they, they essentially, they go to the supermarket and they're like, you know, what's popping in culture? What's relevant in culture, but hasn't been innovated in years? Like what hasn't changed in so long? Yeah. And so if you go to the supermarket and you go to the, to the hot sauce aisle and you look at all the hot sauces, they're all relatively the same. They all look like twins and cousins. Right. Right. Like nothing changes. Yeah. All the bottles. Vibes. Yeah. Like the, the, the changes in a bottle are very they're very small. Like it's not a significant change where you look at a bottle and it stands out. Mm-hmm. And so their thought process was, we want to create the Ciroc of hot sauce. The same way when, you know, we, we would go to, to, we would go out in college and we would go to the club or we'd go to a bar or whatever. And you're looking at the top shelf like, damn, the Ciroc looks dope. You know, we, we get, yeah. we get. And then ultimately the, like, buy we get Smirnoff. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> we yeah. get Smirnoff, but like the Ciroc <laughs> looks awesome. Yeah. Right. Because it, it, the form factor, that elegance, it just looks like top shelf liquor. And so their whole goal was, OK, how can we make a top shelf hot sauce? Like we want this to look like it's it's upscale. Mm-hmm. Then the idea behind that was they wanted to be the first hot sauce brand that's social first. The first one that is like we're going to be dominant on social media and that's where we're going to grow and that's where we're going to find people. Yeah. So the next thing they turned to was, OK, if we're going to do, do that, we're going to focus there. We need to focus on form factor. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that our bottle stands out. So if you look at a trough bottle, it's black, it's sleek, it's minimalistic. The the letterings in gold are the white. cap is yeah. like a geode. Exactly. It, like yeah. it says trough really clean on the front. Yeah. And then the cap, the lid is the the next thing, which is it's custom. Like it's not like every other cap yeah. out there or at the grocery store. And it stands out. Like which is another another thing to that point. So so what's crazy about that cap is it's the exact same experience as a Cholula bottle with its yeah. wooden cap where you're kind of like spinning it off. The exact, you know, the neck of it is very similar. And the experience of pouring trough out 
like that all feels familiar. But what they innovated on, to your point, is the cap looks completely unique completely and, different. and brand new. Yeah. And so they're giving you that same behavioral experience that you're familiar with and that you're going to feel comfortable doing, but making it feel new at the same time. 100%. And, and when you think about that, you think about, okay, what do you mean by it's, it's made for social? Well, it's made for UGC. It's made for people to mm-hmm. get it and want to create content around it. We talk about Last Crumb all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And Last Crumb did a, ph- a phenomenal job of, they made an unboxing experience that is one of one, right? Yeah. It's, it's unmatched. The cookie is like in this like wrapper with a story and then it comes with a guide on how to do an unboxing experience. Not that Truff does that, Truff does that but Truff has created this experience where if it's almost like a statement to have Truff in your kitchen. It's yeah. like made to be, you know, almost like a decor in your kitchen. And 100%. it looks like that. Yeah. And so even if you just look uh, look up the hashtag Truff on TikTok, you'll see there's nearly 5,000 videos made about Truff, right? And hundreds of millions of views. And when you actually break down that number, they started, they, they were founded in 2017. That means every day from 2017 to today, there's been two videos made about Truff, right? Yeah. Just on TikTok. And that's just a, a way of thinking of like, that means like every single day there's a customer getting this product and making yeah. a video, essentially an ad for free for me about it. So the other thing that they do really well is again, being social first, they create a lot of viral CGI videos. I don't know if you've seen some of these. I have the one with the the, the Las Vegas Sphere one. Had me the Las Vegas Sphere is, yes, that is an that- incredible one where like, they they essentially it was when this Vegas sphere was hot, right? Like yeah. there was this video of right the, when it came out. They were so yes. quick to react, which is one of the keys to this. This is like I'll talk about it, but like if you want to for this v, uh, viral like CGI videos to work, they got to be very time sensitive. Like when something's hot, when something's getting talked about, like create yeah. the thing and just join the conversation. But one of the ones that's again really good, the Vegas sphere. You know, the Vegas sphere opens up, and instead of it just like saying truff on the sphere the whole bottle pops up and it's like nearly all the way like a skyscraper touching the plane. Yeah. Right. One of the other really good ones was during the time recently where it was a lot of talk about UFOs and like possibly seeing one in Florida or Arizona or whatever the case may be, they made a fake UFO video. Right. And it shows it like just zagging, going like back and forth really fast. When you zoom in on it, it says truff on the UFO. Right. And then they just did one for, for Christmas as well. They created a giant Santa that Santa was walking through New York and just like dropped truff on on the on the floor. So the idea here is when everybody zigs, you got to zag. Yeah. Right. That's that's the the basic level uh, takeaway. And another thing, just to close that loop right there is, I think when you're a retail heavy brand like they are, it's really important to invest in brand awareness content, viral content versus obviously a lot of D 2 C brands are going to put most of their dollars into performance ROI yeah. generating marketing and. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, like they're just seeing kind of like silly viral videos that are very, very familiar to people. And then just inserting themselves into that dialogue versus, you know, having to come up with some super original campaign idea about like, I mean, you know, like say they wanted to do their own show of hot ones and it was only truff sauces or something. Yeah. That probably wouldn't get a ton of no, you know, distribution ac- across social because they would have to build it amongst their own audience. Yeah. Versus they're creating these memes. Like they're kind of like mastering the art of the beam yeah. meme. And uh, some that a lot of retail brands, like I don't think they do very effectively, but could help them stand out a lot more on the shelf. And when you do shit like this, it ties into the second part, which is 
one, you generate a lot of awareness, but you generate a lot of awareness in, the, uh, in front of the right people. Yeah. And in this case, it's celebrities and influencers who have taken notice of Truff and become huge fans of Truff. So, you know, they, they've gotten, even when they were early on, they got their product into the hands of Kris Jenner, Lizzo, um, MGK, like just a bunch of big names. I know names. she was using too much of it. Lizzo? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I yeah, I was going to go down that rabbit hole. But <laughs> so when, when I listen to different interviews, there's really three ways that they seed influencers. So the first one is if they're trying to reach a celebrity, they find the influencers that the celebrity follows. Mm. And so by doing that, then they seed those influencers knowing that if they could get them to post it, then it'll reach the celebrities. Super smart. The next is seeding the actual celebrity, right? That's the most, that's an obvious one, trying to find whether it's their manager or finding their address and getting the product to them. That's obviously a long shot. It's much harder. But here's the, the third one, which is really clever. And this is how they got product into Lizzo's hands. This is a true story. Mm. You seed people in their circle, right? And so what they did was they found Lizzo's hairdresser. Got it. And they seeded Lizzo's hairdresser. Liz, Lizzo's hairdresser was like, Bitch, look, I got that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so they they found Lizzo's hairdresser and they seated the hairdresser and then yeah. the hairdresser then got it to Lizzo. And because of that, they've had these big moments where there's Lizzo with trust. There's I do Chris anything Jenner. for like what that interaction looked like. I know, yeah. You think like the hairdresser was just like putting it on a taco and yeah, Lizzo, yeah. Lizzo's like, yo, what the fuck is that? The, yeah, the hairdresser's like, <laughs> Yeah. So super interesting there. Then the the next thing that they've been doing is like, they had a transition where they went from, okay, we're going to be a DTC company to we're in the, in the, in the doors of 20,000 retailers. Yeah. So we need to generate awareness fast because if you're in retail and you're not selling out, they're going to pull you from the shelf. Yeah. The next thing for them that they turned to was partnerships. They were like, okay, if we can, if we can uh, leverage really smart partnerships, we can piggyback and essentially bridge off other audiences. Right. And, and the idea there is, you know, they did a collab or a partnership with Super Mario that I'll talk about. But you're essentially increasing your total address, addressable market the second you get with Super Mario because now you're getting in front of all Super Mario fans when you release this collab. So right. the first thing they did was in 2021, they did a collab with Bagel Bites. That mm. collab crushed. And the whole goal with that collab was we need a successful case study so that we can do collabs with other big companies. right? And so since then, they've done one with Hidden Valley, Super Mario, GoPuff, uh, Warren Lotus, all these big brands that are culturally relevant. And so the, I did a lot of research and what I was finding was, okay, all these different uh, interviews about how and why and where like they, they choose their partners. So if they're going to collab with a brand, they need, a, they need to collab with a brand that uh, checks off these first things or these first three things. Are they iconic? Do they have mass appeal? And do they offer the hype moment where people are overly passionate about the, about the brand, right? Their whole goal is to generate massive awareness and do it quickly and encourage the conversation specifically around mm -hmm. around troughs. Um, so any of these collabs need to tap into nostalgia, cultural relevance, multi-generational audiences, and then regional growth efforts. Mm. The reason regional growth efforts is, uh, is important is because now everybody in America, according to their data, lives within 10 miles of somewhere that lives or that sells troughs. If these um, collabs could tap into these regional growth efforts, then they could get these people to then try trucks or pick it up at the store. The interesting part of the thing that I think is is really smart is, okay, I partner with Super Mario, right? And we do this in, in re the release of the movie. Super Mario fan buys the collab, loves the sauce, tries it for the first time, absolutely loves it. 
Well, guess what? Now they're most likely 10 miles from a grocery store that that sells it. Mm-hmm. So therefore, now that they've become a fan, they're going to purchase it when they see it at the store. And yeah. so that they've they've done these collabs. And this has kind of been what's skyrocketed skyrocketed their growth the last kind of two to three years. It's been fascinating. Like I I, I kind of knew of them, but I never gone down the rabbit hole of Truff. Yeah. Um, they're killing it. They're absolutely crushing it. Killing it, man. They uh they were so heavy D2C Facebook ads initially as well. And I do think there's something really cool about when a brand will go super heavy D2C and spend a ton of money. Almost anyone you know was somewhat aware. They had seen Truff and been like, yo, that's the expensive hot sauce, right? And then when you actually get that moment where you see it in retail, you're kind of like, oh, fuck it. I'll try it now. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to like order it online. I didn't want to order it when it would take some time to get to me. But when you actually see it on shelf, you're like, damn, I saw this online. They must like really be exploding. Something's, it creates this sort of momentum that I also think they were able to capitalize on because to your point, you know, they became super culturally relevant through partnerships. But initially, they definitely hammered their D2C performance marketing channels. And, yeah. you know, that's how they built the initial business. That's how they justify to whatever retailers are putting them on the shelf. They're like, look at this sell through rate. Look at what we can do if we were actually you know, able to cap- capitalize on your foot traffic. And, you know, look at what we'll be able to, we'll be able to bring this audience to your store. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, dude, insane. And also it just like, there's something to be said for, you know, Frank's Red Hot being $6 and Truff being like 17. Yeah. You know, and you're just, you, that builds so much curiosity in the eyes of the consumer. They're like, what is going on here? You know, I want to try it. I think like when that Oren episode where we talked about luxury products, you know, with, uh, you know, a specific product and it being luxury, you could look at the material. When it's something like truff, you could look at the ingredients and specifically like truff, like that is just a rare ingredient. It's not in most hot sauces and that just yeah. elevates the luxury of the product. And I, did they like coincide with the rise of truffle fries? I it, feel like they did. It seems like truffle, they also hit a lick because it seems like truffle was exploding. And I wonder what the timeline there, I would love to hear from the founders like, where they discovered truffle as a flavor because it's something that has always been sort of a luxury upsell at restaurants and definitely that came from owning that food page exactly and kind of they kind of got the data on the back end of that yeah which is super interesting another person that um you know not in the food space but definitely is like an explosively growing brand right now that did this exact same model which is kind of curating an instagram page to a certain almost a mood board of what she liked was uh emily oberg from sporty and rich so, you know, we've talked about her before, but her entire start, you know, she first started with uh, Ronnie Feig at, at Kith, and then she decided to launch her own brand once she had built a really successful Instagram page. And Sporty and Rich leverages kind of, you know, retro country club, athletic, nostalgia, uh, aesthetic to, you know, create kind of an aspirational brand, which allows them to price themselves pretty high. And she straight up has said in so many interviews that all of the ideas from the original brand launch just came from her curation of what she thought was cool, um, which is interesting because if you think about it, if you're going to roll out a product to an audience and maybe it's not your email list, which has come to you for a very specific reason, a lot of times Instagram followings or Twitter followings, whatever it is, TikTok followings, they might be a little less you know, intentional about giving you their information. She's curating her entire following around a very specific aesthetic. And then she created the exact brand for that aesthetic. 
like what more signal could she want you know all of her audience is saying we really like and want to see more of what you're putting out there and so she then turns it into something that's tangible and real for them to actually rep you know one 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 space that this might get really interesting is a lot of luxury furniture you know restoration hardware is kind of a really big incumbent player that people associate with luxury furniture and homes are such an aspirational thing you can definitely curate a lot of very specific ideas around architecture and different styles of homes you know there's modern homes there's spanish homes there's colonial like red brick whatever and each of those homes sort of like say you want to create a theme page specifically around you know the really modern sleek boxy home in turn you could potentially monetize downstream with you know an appliances company specifically for that type of home or for furniture specifically for that type of home there's a lot of different high ticket drop shipping methods you can do where you just are sourcing suppliers and then curating that and then that's your brand um so i think you know the luxury home is one i think the non-toxic home you is something that we talk like to. a realtor yeah you know what i mean like curate a bunch and then eventually you could find the same things relatively the same things that you're curating. yeah definitely doesn't always have to be a d2c product yeah <laughs> you, you don't have to get into the worst business model of all time to do this uh all right, so the, the next thing I want to talk about is reverse engineering somebody's funnel, especially essentially spying on your competitors. Um, so I'm writing this startup guide. I think I told you about it, but I'm going down this rabbit hole. I'm like, okay, how can I put together the best guide for people that are either on a low budget, they just raised money, whatever the case may be. They could look at this and it's like the startup Bible. One of the first things that we're talking about is a competitor analysis. How do you analyze your competitors, what they're doing? Not so that you could blindly copy them, yeah. So you could take inspo from them and figure out how they've scaled. And it's, and when you are doing this, you want to find companies that have been growing at a fast rate for a long time. Yeah. Not somebody that's like trying to get off the ground and running. No, you're trying to find somebody that's been, you know, growing and has shown proven success of growing. So a lot of this, we're going to probably overlap, but I think there's little things that you do differently versus that I do. So the most obvious is you're going to go to uh, your competitor's Facebook ad library, mm-hmm. right? You're going to look at all their ads. You're going to click uh, page transparency, go to their ad library and start looking through um, their ad library. In there, one of the most, uh, the things that I like to do is find the oldest ad. Yeah. What, what have they been running for a very fucking long time? The reason is it's spending efficiently and it's fucking working, right? Like that is the da- all the data that you need behind that. Definitely. But then I like to do a few things. I like to take the landing page that they're sending traffic to and I like to put it into Web Archive. Mm. So Web Archive, I don't know if you've ever been on that site. No. You could go back and find every single update on a website. Mm. And so you could find every single landing page. So I could find, I could take that landing page, plug it in, and see every variation of a landing page and all the evolutions that it's made since you know first being published. Super dope. So I did this with Mudwater. And I saw that the first ad that they, uh, that they ran and sent to a landing page nothing has changed except the text above or like the the H1. They just right? changed the headline. Yes. So landing page number one was very product focused. Yeah. It just said your new morning ritual. Yeah. Uh, like that's an okay headline. It's nothing special. Then they updated it like a year or two later. The next one was energy all day long. Again, okay. But if you think about coffee and then you think about like a mushroom alternative Speaking like to this. to a world where you don't have the crash. Yeah. You, you look at energy all day long. And again, it's like, it's too generic. It's a solid value proposition, but it doesn't separate you from a coffee. Mm-hmm. And that the whole goal of Mudwater is to separate yourself from coffee or be a coffee alternative. 
when you look at landing page number three, which is the one that they're running traffic to right now is energy and focus without the jitters. Yeah. And so like that very subtle change that you could see is just them honing in and like understanding and maturing their value proposition. The the next thing that I like to do is, so same thing, I did farmer's dog. I wanted it like, mm. they've been blowing up. Yeah. Right. Huge. Like I think they do, or they're doing 800 million in revenue in 2023. And so when I'm, looking at at reverse engineering this and I'm looking at reverse engineering somebody's funnel specifically I'm looking at their landing pages their entry points into a funnel their offers objection tackling personalization exit intent and then uh, email marketing so for farmer's dog um, they do a really good job at like they they have very good top of funnel ads and then they have really good retargeting as soon as you've you've done some um you've like been on their website or whatever, like they do a really good job of retargeting you. So when you look at their their first uh, kind of funnel, so their Facebook ad is very educational based about why your dog needs human grade food versus kibble. So they essentially like find the enemy. Then the enemy in this case is kibble. Yeah. Then their landing page is very tailored towards like stressing that a healthier life starts with healthier food. Like that is that is their, I would say their value proposition and everything supports that. Everything works in this case, bottom to top of, okay, here's here's the value proposition. Everything now supports that one thing. The cool thing is they, they have two entry points. So they have a, a nav bar that just that is essentially static and that is an offer. It's just 20% off. Mm -hmm. And then that takes you into their quiz. Then the second was a, the second uh, entry point is just their landing pages. Like they have CTA on their landing pages, typical. But both things take you into a questionnaire. Yep. That questionnaire is tailored towards figuring out what your dog needs, what's it, what it's dealing with, and what food is best for your dog. Um, and, and because of that, then they're able to personalize the remainder of the funnel. They're able to personalize uh, the emails that they send you, the ads that they later target, with you, uh, target you with, all based on the personalization because of the questionnaire. The same thing, the thing I like too is they have a good exit intent. When I try to exit, they tackle the two top objections. So the first one being, do you need different recipes or is it too expensive? The last part of their funnel is email. So because they're able to get all this data from the questionnaire, they send very personalized email of like, you know, for me, for my dog, it's uh, it's tailored towards Marley, his needs. It's like, hey, here's Marley's recipe. Here's why. Here's why you should get it. Now, so I have this Figma template um, that I put all these funnels through so I could see it visually. I'll link it in the description so that if you want, you can download it. Um, or you could also get it from this startup guy that uh, we're putting together. The next thing I like to see is what is a company's retargeting ads? Like, right, you didn't get me to convert the first time. You can't just use the same ad and messaging and landing pages and get me to convert. Yeah. Um, you have to change it up, right? So I like to go down their retargeting funnel. So the thing that I do here is I use this uh, Chrome extension called My Ad Finder. Mm. And so My Ad Finder, what that does is it blocks everything on your Facebook feed and only shows you ads so that you don't have to essentially go through Facebook and like try to find the ad. Yeah. So I did this with... That's uh, how I use the platform. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so instead of aimlessly scrolling, you're just finding the ads. So I yeah, did this yeah. with, with Farmer's Dog. <laughs> as soon as I got on the platform, I got hit with three different retargeting ads. Mm. One from Farmer's Dog directly, or sorry, one from Farmer's Dog directly like this, and they switched their offer from 20% off to 50% off. Um, through And then the other two was through a pet publication and then through a food publication. Yeah. So similar to what we were talking about and doing before. Doing the whitelisting from theme pages. Exactly. Yeah. Both with the 50% offer. And then each ad funneled me back to Marley's plan. Like because they had that data, they just took me back to like, not the checkout, 
but yeah, like right they, before they the checkout. The information. Yeah, yeah. They, exactly. But the when you reverse engineer the retarding funnel, it was super interesting that the offer got better. And yeah. then I did more data on, or I did more uh, digging on the on the offer. And they said that they give you five, 50% off as a statement to say, you're trying our product. We believe in our product. We're giving you 50% off because once you try it, you're going to love it and you're going to see the differences in your dog. Like that's what their their CEO said. That may be them just defending their 50% off though. Yep. Um, yeah. <laughs> then the second part that was really interesting was that the ads came from either Farmer's Dog or like you said, like they whitelisted through different publications that they can leverage as social proof uh, from these large public publications to push products. So super interesting. I love reverse engineering shit. Yeah. You've you've been in this game for a long time with DTC brands. Like, how do you do it? Yeah. my So my first step these days is I'll actually go straight to TikTok and Google the brand and just see like what sort of organic videos, kind of like we were talking about with Truff, where you Google the the or not google uh where you damn good for google i'm saying you're googling on tiktok um but like where you're you're searching the name of the brand and just seeing like what are people actually authentically creating about them and also i think what's really powerful about that is you can see what's resonating right if the video has got a lot of traction and engagement then that clearly shows that this is something that a lot of people are sharing as maybe a concern or a question about the product so, you know, that's always kind of step one is just see what the public sentiment is around the product. I'm sure if you did this with Farmer's Dog, you would have a lot of people voicing concerns about the subscription or, you know, maybe about like some ways, some complaints that they might have about the product quality and not being up to snuff. And, you know, if you're Farmer's Dog, that's a really good way for you to understand what are the objections that we need to handle in that retargeting? Yeah. You know, it's a super easy way to, obviously you're, you can you can survey your customers all you want, but if you want to get that raw data, it's like, just go see what they're actually saying. And then similarly, you know, if you're a farmer's dark competitor, you want to use that as your top of funnel acquisition type stuff, right? Positioning yourself against farmer's dog and differentiating from them. So leveraging those objections that you might find on TikTok as, you know, organic content. Um, so you're saying go, go to TikTok, find the negative shit people are saying about farmer's dog. If you're farmer's dog, farmer's dog uh, competitor, now you're leveraging that for your top of funnel ads. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's something I always toyed around with this idea of creating a SaaS that would scrape your competitors' reviews and ultimately identify different pain points and different things that were trends as what people really enjoyed about the product. Um, but the problem is most D2C brands are not showing any of the negative views that are out there anyway. Um, that's a topic for another time. But so... Uh, you know, that's number one. I think number two, something that I always love to do is I just want to know how big a brand is. Yeah. Like my, my, I'm just such a snoopy, snoopy person. Like I want to know like, what is your revenue? Like, what are you spending on ads? And if you're someone that wants to do that about another brand, maybe it's a competitor or maybe it's your friend that started a brand and it looks like they're doing well now and you want to see what's going on. There's a few tools that you can leverage. So the first one is called SimilarWeb. So SimilarWeb gives you a rough estimate of how much traffic is happening on a website. So yesterday, I uh, got a sales call booked for today from a brand that I thought was pretty big, but didn't really know how big they might be. And uh, I, I did SimilarWeb on their website. They had 800,000 visits per month. So for me, I'm looking at that saying, okay, well, 800,000 visits. Now let's do some back of the napkin math. I want to go cross-reference that with what is their organic search traffic? 
And then you can kind of look at the delta between what their organic search traffic is and their total traffic, and that's their paid media traffic. Mm. So what happens from there is, say there's 100,000 site visits. Well, every site visit costs a certain amount. So maybe it's a cost per click of $2, right? So if they have 100,000 paid uh, site visits and their cost per click is $2, well, then they're paying 200,000 a month for that paid media traffic. Okay, you know, what's another method that we can do? Well, we'll just look at conversion rate on uh, what that site traffic is. So maybe it's, you know, average e-commerce is anywhere from like two to 5% conversion rate. Um, So just kind of modeling those different scenarios gives you an idea of like how big a brand can be. Um, and I was able to kind of like walk it back with this brand and be like, okay, I bet they're doing like 30 to, you know, 55 mil in revenue. And they ended up, they were doing around 41. So it does actually work pretty well, even though these tools, I mean, that's a huge spread is like 10, $10 million in revenue, but you know, you can only get the ranges that are possible to you. Um, I love that. Yeah. It's super smart, super smart to go to do it, uh, that way. There's one, there's one more tool that's kind of like, you know, far out there, but it's called D2C Spy. And it's these guys who will, they'll buy a product at the beginning of the month and then buy one at the end of the month and just like buy the, buy the order number. They'll be like, okay, you know, we were order number 1100 at the beginning of the month and we were order number 1500 mm-hmm. at the end of the month. So there were 400 orders yeah. and their average order value is $100. So 400 times 100 is their revenue, which is 400. Interesting. Yeah. So um, those are some of the things that I'll do to spy on people. I think you know, you nailed on the head, like go to someone's ad library, look at the most common themes across their different ads. Like yeah. they clearly are saying some things that they know work if the ad's been active for a long time. People do need to be careful though, because creative testing is really dra- like dramatically increased in volume in the last couple of years. People really believe in testing a ton of different creatives. And so it's not only, always going to be that if an ad has been running for a while, it's working. Like I can say that to you right now. Like if I'm running 20 ads, like four of them are driving like the lion's share of revenue. So be careful playing that Russian roulette because if you pick one of the 16 that are failing, then you're just going to put out bad creative. All right. So that was a fucking episode. We went from talking about uh, drones that take out planes to hot sauce to how to reverse engineer a funnel and spy on your competitors. And um, let us know if that was too all over the place or yeah. if you enjoyed the... This is like, just how we spend our time the on the internet. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, hot sauce. Oh, a drone. This yeah. is a sweet video. Well, and it's like, how can you create some sort of common pathway between, you know, a weapons defense company and a chocolate company. Because like, they're doing a lot of the same things and those principles can then be applied to whatever you're doing. 100%. But, you know, if that if that was a little scrambled, then <laughs> let us blame know. them. Just yeah. let us know. Uh, on the on another note, like, subscribe on, on YouTube. If you can, leave us a review. If you do leave a review, send us an email at podcast at markingsama.com. Um, because we'll write about or we'll talk about your brand, how we'd grow it. If you need some marketing strategy, something, we'll we'll help you out, figure out something there. Um, and then outside of that, you could find me at uh, on any of the channels at Alex Garcia underscore ATX. And then if you want more playbooks like this Truffs one or uh, how to reverse engineer somebody's funnel, markingzama.com. We put these out twice a week. So Brian, where yep. can they find you? Uh, at Brian underscore Bloom on Instagram and Twitter. Um, nothing to plug content wise, but definitely subscribe to the podcast. And every review means so much for us. I mean, the podcast algorithms really go off of, you know, social proof. And a lot of it actually happens through discovery. So when you leave reviews, we show up for marketing podcasts. So help the time. Uh, Please do that. And if you send it to us, we'll definitely try and help you out. Peace.